turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, he is, and he's here to say hello, welcome, good to have you with us. 22nd day of May as we head into the... uh Memorial Day weekend, and on this Wednesday, delighted you're along for the ride or have invited us to accompany you wherever you might be headed. We'll uh, hopefully keep you informed, entertained, and uh, all that good stuff right up until 7 o'clock tonight. Got a great lineup of guests. A little bit later on, we're going to get a chance to talk with the author of a new book that talks about how to live your life in such a fashion that you are able to dare to hope. And in a day and an age when hope seems to be on life support uh, with so much around us that uh, is frustrating, and then you add to that uh, not only the world around us, but then individual challenges and problems that we have with our families, with our health, all of this, um, sometimes you got to work to live intentionally in an unstable world. We're going to talk about that very topic a little bit later on in tonight. So if you've been kind of in that hopeless spot in life for the moment, don't despair. We've got some great insights for you from the prophet Jeremiah coming up a little bit later on. All right, let's uh, let's talk about hope when it comes to health care, shall we? Uh, this is an issue that touches every American's life, and we know that the battle over the Affordable Care Act, to repeal, to replace. Um, it, it, put it this way. If Americans had a dollar for every broken promise by politicians on both sides of the aisle on this topic, we wouldn't need health insurance. We'd all have enough money to pay for our own health care. But sadly, that's not the case. And people oftentimes have to look for alternatives with some of the changes that have taken place Within even the Affordable Care Act, there are fewer Americans insured today than there were even three or four years ago. But yet we recognize (laughs) all you have to do is have one tiny accident, and it could wind up bankrupting you if you do not have insurance. And when hospital stays can run, you know, three, four, five thousand, six thousand dollars a day, you can get the presidential suite, the Fairmont Hotel for a lot less. Many folks have looked to alternatives, and one way that many have found to be successful is pooled risk. And now you say, well, Craig, isn't that insurance effectively? Well, yes and no. Let's find out more about this. And most importantly, another assault on health care insurance and health care costs, this time being mustered by our own inimitable state of California. Joel Noble joins us. He's Director of Public Policy for Samaritan Ministries. And, uh, Joel, I know a lot of folks have heard about Samaritan Ministries on the radio. Tell us first fundamentally a little bit about the model here and what makes it not only very unusual but very successful for participants. Absolutely, and thanks for having me. So Samaritan is a healthcare sharing ministry, which is a non-insurance way to meet medical needs. 
And so there's actually no, no pooling involved at Samaritan. What we do is we connect our members uh, each month, uh, those that had medical needs with those that are helping, and they share directly in each other's medical needs. And all that's done directly member to member without pooling and without insurance. And this can be a very um, effective alternative, particularly for people that have challenges in getting insurance. Absolutely, yep. So it's, um, I mean, it's great for uh, for folks that are looking for uh, control of their own healthcare dollars and you know, being able to go to the providers and the hospitals they want to see. Because again, since they don't have insurance, they're not locked into certain providers certain hospitals and they have the freedom to spend their health care dollars how they see best for them and their family. Well, now that's rare, Joel. We don't normally hear the word freedom and how you spend your health care dollars tied into the same sentence. So that's encouraging. Sadly, though, as we are learning, uh, the state of California doesn't like freedom too much, at least not in this arena. Tell us what's going on and the potential threat here uh, to every single California member of Samaritan Ministries. Sure, absolutely. So we've been operating... um, right around 25 years, and we were fortunate uh, by, you know, God's grace to have an exemption in the Affordable Care Act. So when the federal government mandated uh, insurance, um, there's a number of exemptions, one of them being health care sharing ministries. And so they saw that what, what we were doing actually was meeting, their members were meeting each other's needs, even without insurance, and so they were able to grant uh, an exemption so our members didn't have to get insurance. So when the penalty went to zero beginning of this year, a number of states started looking at at their own individual mandate on the state level. And again, I understand they're trying to do best for their citizens by, you know, uh, keeping them insured, concerned about rising costs if they don't have insurance. And a number of states um, just modeled the ACA, including the exemption for health care sharing, and we were very thankful for that. Uh, New Jersey passed one, Maryland, Hawaii, Washington, with some other states that looked at proposals but included exemption for health care sharing. Unfortunately, California is looking at a mandate, and uh, the bill does not have an exemption uh, for health care sharing. Uh, the governor's trailer bill uh, did include all the exemptions for, from the ACA, including health care sharing. Um, but uh, our information is that the budget committee is going to uh, strip that out, and there won't end up being an exemption for health care sharing. So that is that is our concern if this mandate goes forward. What's the threat here? I mean, it, it seems to be a solution in search of a problem. The way you're describing it. Sure. Yeah. It's and uh, a lot of it is just um, you know again trying to do the best for for their citizens by you know making sure they have something, and we you know ultimately would just like them if they're going to model the ACA then to model you know the ACA exemptions also. Our members have been taking care of each other, like I said, for 25 years, and that's um, you know nearly 30 million dollars every month they're sharing between each other. Um, and so, I mean, there's nearly 4,000 of Samaritan members in California, and so their healthcare needs are being met by each other. And so, that they don't need to go get insurance in addition to what they already have through Samaritan, um, and they also. You know, what they're sharing each month doesn't need to be compounded with a penalty for not having insurance. So, I mean, and it's often been kind of teased, but in a way, I think 
the president when he passed the ACA, I mean, may have generally meant, you know, if you like what you have, you can keep it. You know, people joke about it now, but we saw that, and our members were able to keep what was working for them. And we just, you know, would love California to do the same thing, that it's it's working for the members there. So just keep keep it intact and allow our members to be exempt from any penalty, just like the ACA. And where does this stand right now in terms of process in committee, and where do you anticipate it going? Sure. Our understanding is that it's going to be heard um, this this evening, maybe in the morning, in the Senate Budget Committee. And so um, we you know, let our members know that so they can let their state senators know uh, about that. Um, from there, it, um, you know, we'll just... Uh, continue on um you know through through that committee i'm not sure if it needs to be heard by by another committee um but uh ultimately you know if what's in the governor's trailer bill uh if it just stays intact that would be that would be great that would be the most helpful thing for our members at this point since it includes an exemption so i mean we would just prefer that the committee you know stick with the governor's trailer bill since they included an exemption in there and, and absent that objection, any idea potentially how many Californians could be impacted by this negatively? So with us, we have nearly 4,000 households. Um, there's other national ministries that I know are operating there that have um, at least that or more. Uh, so, I mean, I would, you know, us and the uh, other national ministries, I mean, you're talking 15,000, 20,000 households. And... You know, with two or three people in every household, I mean, you're, you know, approaching, you know, nearly 100,000 people, uh, individual lives that are going to be impacted uh, in that and not be able to possibly continue what's been working for them for decades. And, and sadly, you know, we're, we're at a juncture here where instead of politicians looking for additional creative ways to address the health care crisis, uh, they're trying to shut the ones down that are. It just, <laughs> it's California. What else can I say? Um, for folks that are interested in this, uh, what do you recommend they do? Should they be contacting um, members of the, uh, the, the Senate uh, the Finance Committee? Where, what do they need to do? Yeah, so if they, you know, want to look up who their who their state senator is, um, they can, you know, find that number of places on, on, on the internet and contact their state senator. Uh, for the folks that um, maybe are already a member of Senate Ministries that are listening, uh, they should have an email in their inbox that has some instructions and a good link to where they can um, uh, contact their state senator and, you know, just follow through on that. But for those that... Uh, haven't yet signed up with Samaritan and you want to be involved, uh, you know, just take a moment to, you know, contact your state center respectively and just ask that healthcare sharing be allowed to uh, be exempt from the uh, mandate. Makes sense. All right. Well, Joe, we appreciate uh, the update, and we uh, we certainly hope that you prevail uh, to the to the benefit of all of your uh, your members. Joe Noble, Director of Public Policy for Samaritan Ministries International, on the web at samaritansministries.org. Five sixteen. Let's get a look at traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
And Joel is recommending that we make that product available for free for all of our Lifeline listeners, or at least the ones that typically fall asleep during the show. <laughs> well, hopefully you won't fall asleep during the next segment here. Uh, as we, we pivot to a topic, and have you been paying any attention? Have you noticed wonderful conservative speakers that are at commencement events all across the country here? Of course, May, June, uh, graduation season at uh, everything from the college and, and, and uh, university level to uh, JCs and high schools and so forth. And it's just it's heartwarming to see the number of conservatives that yeah, you know I'm doing this tongue in cheek, don't you? I tried, I really did. Uh, sadly, it seems as if, if anything, uh, there is a moratorium on anyone that even mildly has conservative in their CV, and find out exactly why we've suddenly gone from free speech to speech free on college and university campuses across the country. We're joined by Spencer Brown, spokesman with Young America's Foundation. And um, Spencer, what about this? I mean, in years past, it wasn't unusual to hear stirring commencement speeches from members of the Supreme Court, the administration, uh, others. There seemed to be somewhat of an attempt, at least at, at balance, but that seems to all entirely have disappeared this year. Is there a moratorium on conservatives at commencement addresses that we didn't get a memo on? <laughs> well, it sure seems like there's sort of an unwritten rule that reigns supreme at the top universities and colleges in the country where, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a conservative actually delivering a commencement address this year. And, you know, like you said, it used to be, you know, sort of this uh, big event, you know, obviously filled with pomp and circumstance, uh, not just the song, but also in the speakers. And it used to be, you know, a moment to sort of uh, have the graduates look back on what they'd learned over the last four years and set them off with some inspiring, you know, message of some kind telling them, you know, work hard and go pursue your dreams. And what we've seen is now it's just kind of fallen off that track and it's become just another opportunity for these universities to provide a leftist slanted lesson to their students. It's almost as if they don't want to miss the last and final chance to kind of get one good solid liberal dig in before the students are off to begin their lives and careers. Well, and if you think about it, too, you know, the messages that the left is spreading on these campuses are not inspiring or aspirational at all. You know, what they're telling their students is that they're a victim. They're somehow, you know, being oppressed by someone else in this intersectional matrix of oppression they've created. And that's not really a great message to send somebody off into the world with, you know, good luck. Uh, have fun out there, but you're probably never going to make it because they completely reject the idea of personal responsibility now, which is obviously one of the most important when it comes to postgraduate life and pursuing a career. Um, and it really is just sad that, you know, universities uh, refuse to sort of be uh, reflective at all and think about the damage they've done to their students, not just with their commencement speakers, but what they've taught them over the previous four or so years. Well, And what's ironic about all this, and, you know, granted, when I went to school, it was back during the dark ages, automobiles hadn't been invented yet and uh, and the like, but there there was a sense that knowledge was about exploration, it was about ideas, it was about science and history, and and oftentimes there was a great deal of give and take because, you know, there are certain fundamental truths that are indisputable and that there are thoughts and ideas that, that can vary from, uh, you know, philosophical or religious viewpoints. And so there was there was an open exchange of ideas and give and take, and we, we encouraged that kind of debate. In fact, going back into the 1960s here in the San Francisco Bay Area, in largely relationship to speeches pertaining to Vietnam, um, Cal Berkeley campus became sort of the hotbed 
of the so-called free speech movement. And it was just all about encouraging students to expose themselves and to discuss amongst each other differing thoughts and differing ideas. But as I suggested in my opening remarks, Spencer, it seems as if there's been this massive paradigm shift since the 1960s that now instead of campuses priding themselves on promoting free speech, they're all about being speech-free. What's happened? Well, I think you're exactly right with that point there. You know, there's been a huge shift, especially at UC Berkeley. You know, this is something, uh, this sort of shift away from the idea that absolute truth exists uh, into this idea that somehow everyone's truth, you know, is relative and their truth is the most important thing. Um, this is something that Young America's Foundation has been tracking for years. But at UC Berkeley, you know, that's where uh, just in the last two years, Young America's Foundation actually had to sue UC Berkeley in federal court over their First and Fourteenth Amendment violations of conservative students' rights. Um, and, you know, ultimately we were successful in that. And Berkeley had to pay $70,000 in legal fees and had to fundamentally transform uh, the policies that they had on the books there at the school. And it's just remarkable, you know, how they continue to call themselves at Berkeley the home of the free speech movement, but it ended up being basically where free speech went to die. And, you know, if not for YAF's lawsuit, they would still be getting away with that kind of behavior. And so it's remarkable to have seen higher education go from being, you know, these centers of higher learning and the free and open exchange of ideas and academic discovery to being basically echo chambers where only leftist ideas are tolerated, only leftist speakers are allowed or welcome to campus. Uh, and it, it's really tragic when you think about what that's done, you know, to the rising generation who went through those four years at Berkeley and other schools across the country who are now graduating with these liberal commencement addresses. Uh, and they all think it's true. You know, they've never heard the conservative point of view. And I think it does, you know, harm to them just in the fact that they don't have sort of the academic rigor that previous generations would have had of being able to defend their ideas and reason through new ones. Um, I think that's a practice that's just kind of been cast aside in the name of political correctness. Well, and oftentimes you hear the term uh, snowflake uh, bantied about, and, uh, you know, uh, clearly some people are, are hypersensitive to, uh, uh, quote-unquote, microaggressions. And and yet what's ironic about all this is the very people who, as we say, 40 years ago were championing the importance, the value, that at all costs we must defend First Amendment rights because it's the American way, it's the Constitution. Now we're doing just the opposite. It's everything we can do to shut down ideas that seem to be anything but extremely on the liberal side. And ironically here at Berkeley, I mean, I uh, was it a year ago, I guess, when, when they – the big fuss took place over Milo Yiannopoulos coming to speak, and I thought, you know, talk about hand in glove. A place like Berkeley ought to be welcoming someone like Milo, who 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 clearly is is espousing a conservative viewpoint from a gay perspective. I mean, isn't that just like San Francisco? You would think that they would want to hear him out. Instead, no, they practically burned the building down to prevent him from getting in. And, of course, their response to other potential invited speakers like Ben Shapiro and Ann Coulter was even worse. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think if you look at, you know, the commencement addresses this spring, it sort of reflects the same thing, where it doesn't matter uh, what sort of experiences you have or what sort of stories or, um, you know, ideas you want to share. If you're not just completely in lockstep with the left on every single issue, you're going to be pushed off campus or banned or protested or even, you know, have students basically burning down their own school as protests. 
Um, and so you see, you know, this year specifically with commencement addresses, there's only one person from the Trump administration who's giving an address at one of these top 100 schools, and that's the U.S. ambassador to Israel who's speaking at Yeshiva University in New York City. <laughs> um, but if you compare that with previous years, you know, the, these universities were basically tripping over themselves trying to get members of the Obama administration to speak, and even President Obama himself. Uh, you know, spoke more than, I believe it was 23 different commencement addresses he gave uh, during the time he was in office. And now today, you know, you don't see President Trump being invited to these leading universities. You don't see the vice president. You don't see any of the cabinet secretaries. You don't see anybody, you know, in the conservative news media being invited. Meanwhile, this parade of leftist speakers, everybody from CNN and NBC and liberal business leaders and liberal politicians are all that these schools want to hear from. Uh, and I think it's really a shame because obviously, you know, a lot of those people on the conservative side have inspiring stories and important lessons that young people could benefit from. Uh, but once again, the university administrations keep their students from having that sort of opportunity. Well, and sadly, uh, this is part of, I think, a broader agenda that, that essentially is if we can't uh, shout you down, if we can't um, um, outreason you, and, and, and many of the arguments from the extreme left uh, are completely unreasonable and, and die on, on the vine when confronted by truth, uh, then what they're doing is just saying, well, uh, then if we can't win in the arena, in the marketplace of exchange of ideas, then we're going to shut you down. And we've seen this take place on television, certainly uh, uh, campuses, as we've been discussing, not just the commencement addresses, but, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to put the uh, uh, the uh, the muzzle, so to speak, on, on uh, conservative groups and Republican groups and things of this sort. Even Facebook has been accused of this. So this seems to be part of just a, a larger liberal agenda. I guess the big question at the end of the day, Spencer, is how do we respond to all this? Well, that's a great question, you know, and that's what we are seeking to answer every day at Young America's Foundation. You know, we uh, have the largest nationwide campus lecture program in America that brings leading conservatives like Ben Shapiro uh, and others to these university campuses to directly speak to these students who, without these lectures put on by YAF, you know, would probably never hear conservative ideas. And what we find is that even though, you know, the opposition is often very fierce, and, you know, at Berkeley, uh, it ended up, you know, they had to bring in 300,000 police officers, or excuse me, 3,000 police officers in order to protect the venue uh, and basically lock down the campus just so Ben could speak. But what we see is in the midst of all that craziness um, is that young people who hear these ideas actually respond positively to them, uh, which you wouldn't expect, especially at a place like UC Berkeley. Um, but it's often because students have never heard the conservative point of view. They've only heard it as demonized by their liberal professors or their liberal peers. When they hear conservative ideas, they're often more appealing, more inspiring, and we find that we are able to change students' hearts and minds when they actually hear conservative ideas. So that's why we believe what we're doing is so important um, and why, you know, we're incredibly proud here in commencement season to be wrapping up uh, another semester and another school year where we brought, you know, hundreds of conservative speakers to hundreds of campuses across the country to sort of break up that blockade and that monopoly on ideas that the left tries to maintain uh, but we haven't backed down. You know, we had to sue Berkeley. We're suing the University of Minnesota and the University of Florida right now for similar unconstitutional actions. Um, and we find that our students are bold. Uh, you know, we obviously back them up, and it's a, it's a battle that we are winning. 
And one that we continue to be enjoined in because it's critical. I mean, once we've lost this ground and it's the, you know, the battlefield for ideas amongst young people, uh, then the state of our union is only going to grow worse. So uh, hats off to you guys for the efforts being made. And I think we all need to be, get behind this notion of promoting true free speech and true free exchange of ideas on university campuses. And, you know, one way we can also vote is with our feet. So, you know what, I'm not going to send my kid to that place and write a huge check unless uh, there is a policy in place that not just stipulates but then protects, demonstratively protects all rights of opinion, including those on the conservative side. Spencer Brown with America, Young America's Foundation. We appreciate the time today and the update. Spencer, information available on the web, yaf.org. 531, let's get caught up on traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation as we shift gears here tonight into a topic that I think during certain periods of any of our lives touches us, where we find ourselves facing circumstances and situations that just seem to go beyond the pale. And we know ultimately that uh, God will not give us anything that we can't handle. I don't know, though, that that's entirely true. I think in some ways we're given things that we can't handle because he can step in and handle them for us, and he's eager for us to learn how to surrender to him in that fashion and cast our fear away and place our hope in him. But how do we make that leap, that leap of faith? How do we dare to hope and do so in a fashion that is intentional, particularly in what we find to be an ever-increasingly unstable world? Well, a brand-new book that seeks to deal with just that very topic um, newly out and uh, released by our friends in Abington Press and the author of this new book, Dare to Hope, Living Intentionally in an Unstable World. Uh, we're joined here by best-selling author Melissa Spolestra. And Melissa, great to have you with us on the program. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Let's talk a bit about this. Uh, it, it seems to be kind of at the core, as I read the book, um, uh, kind of a Hebrews 11 experience that faith, and what a wonderful passage, faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and those notions of, of substance and evidence being present in faith to help get us to this place where we can exercise our faith, experience hope, and and see God bring us through whatever the circumstances, whatever it is that we might be facing, is certainly wonderful encouragement to every believer. It's just too bad every believer doesn't know how to apply it. Well, I think one of the things that can be so challenging is that life is so hard. We live on a broken planet where there's, you know, marriages that end and bank accounts that run low and, uh, you know, autoimmune disorders and just all kinds of things. And I, I know, you know very personally for me was when my daughter, who lost all of her hair when she was 12 years old, because she has alopecia and has an identical twin sister that had her hair. And I remember her just saying, you know, Mom, all my life you've told me that God is good, and all my life you've told me that God is all-powerful. And I begged and I prayed, you know, for my hair back, and either he can't or he won't. And, you know, 
although it may not be alopecia, I think most people have had something in their lives where they're like, wow, you know, that just didn't turn out the way that I would have thought, and or God didn't answer my prayer the way I thought he would have, you know, if I were the one making the decision. And so it's why I think we can identify with the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, because he says those things. He says the hard things to God. He says, you know, everything I longed for from God was lost, but then he's the one who penned the words, dare to hope. It's in Lamentations, which is his lament. He says, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And uh, so that's a verse that, that sometimes we're familiar with, but it, it shows me that Jeremiah did not hitch his hope wagon to the circumstances, but instead to the character of God. And that's where we can find that substance that you're talking about in Hebrews, that, that faith and that hope is if we, if we put our hope not in everything turning out rosy in our lives, but in the character of God. And it really is a shift in focus then. Uh, from the carnal to the eternal, from uh, our circumstances to Christ. And let's face it, we've all been there in the midst of whatever the storm might be. You alluded to health or finances or or, or marital issues or the runaway child, the the, the child that, that has gone off in a path that you know uh, would ultimately, if, if not diverted, lead to destruction. And, and there's that, that growing sense of frustration and fear and doubt, and we're so wholly focused on the circumstances and how we can possibly find a way of escape that we forget about who it is that has created the way of escape. And and I guess that's the real challenge here at the end of the day, get our eyes off of the circumstances and back on God. Yeah, and, and I think the prophet Jeremiah showed us just a, an example of what it means to, to fully surrender to God's path, even when circumstances are difficult, and, you know, I call him the man with big ears. He used the word Shema, the Hebrew word listen, over and over and over. He learned to listen to God in a noisy culture. I think that's something, we have a noisy culture, you know, where there's just information coming at us through screens, through phones, through just everywhere we turn, and so to know which voices to listen to, and certainly to listen to God's voice above all other voices. It's just a practical way to be intentional as we live in an unstable world. So we have to take a look and say, what are the biggest voices I'm allowing in, allowing in my life? Because I just don't think we're going to get to that that faith and that hope on Netflix and ice cream, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 and that's what I want to do sometimes, you know, is just check out and escape. And uh, that Jeremiah shows us there is another way. And ironically, and you allude to this in the book, that sometimes, you know, there's always that battle over, you know, wanting to hear God's voice, and it's either clear or it seems silent. And I think sometimes people think that, well, I'm not hearing from God because God clearly isn't speaking to me, and yet I would liken it to uh, a, a crazy, busy household with lots of kids, and the television set is blaring in one room, and the radio's blasting in another room, and, and, and mom is talking on the telephone, and the kids are on their cell phones, and there's all this din and all this noise and 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 you know there's poor dad trying to get everybody's attention to sit down for dinner or whatever and nobody's paying any attention and it isn't that it isn't that dad's voice isn't clear isn't sharp isn't there but there's so much other noise surrounding it is getting drowned out i wonder if if oftentimes the same thing happens with our heavenly father that he's speaking but we're allowing all this other noise to serve as a huge distraction and he has spoken. He's spoken through his son, 
I mean, he sent his son into the world, and he's given us his word. And But I think it, it just takes some greater intentionality. You know, Jeremiah didn't have Candy Crush to contend with, and we have, you know, all of these other options. And so we have to be very intentional to choose. Am I going to listen to, you know, junk, or am I going to listen to a godly podcast? Am I going to engage my mind with with good and, and good things that are going to help me. And, and even just this practice of being quiet, of sitting before God and, and lamenting. I, I love that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. He knew, and I think Eastern culture does this better than Western. They knew how to lament in biblical times. They hired mourners. He poured his heart out to the Lord, you know, and instead I think we kind of passive-aggressively complain or we store up bitterness or, you know, just take some different postures when instead we can lament to God and know that he hears us and that he's so merciful to Jeremiah when Jeremiah poured out his heart and, and then he rehearsed the attributes of God. So he laments. But then he reminds himself who God is. You see him do it over and over and over again. It's such a great intentional practice that we can emulate. Well, and there's another big issue here, too, that I'd like to talk about after the break, and that is that, that oftentimes in the midst of the storm and in the midst of the circumstances, we we are so eager to get past that, we are so eager to resolve that problem, that we have a reliance issue. Uh, the, the, our reliance on self, I'm going to fix this, or at the mankind level, we're going to come up with a solution here instead of focusing on placing our reliance on God. And of course, the challenge there is that it is incumbent, therefore, upon us to surrender, to turn over control and power. And that's not an easy thing to do. In fact, uh, Melissa has an experience from her own life with her daughter um, diagnosed with double pneumonia when she was five years old. It's a tough experience for anyone to go through, especially at five when your lungs are not even fully developed. We'll talk about where the reliance went in that case and the lessons learned. Dare to Hope, Living Intentionally in an Unstable World, the new book newly released by Abington Press. Of course, you can get it um, online through Amazon.com or at Bay Area Christian Bookstores. Let's take a time out. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Melissa Spolestra as Lifeline continues. Right now, a conversation about traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back. And as we continue our visit today, the author of Dare to Hope, Living Intentionally in an Unstable World, again, newly released, as I mentioned a moment ago, by Abington Press. And Melissa Spalestra is with us today, its author. Melissa, your story of the experience that your daughter went through, one of your daughters, at the age of five is a compelling one. It also sets up a kind of this notion that there's either reliance and belief on God's capacity to pull through or looking at the circumstances in mankind. Tell us a bit about what happened. And you, you particularly relate a story of the day that your husband came to the hospital with your pastor. Tell us what happened. Mm. Well, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I will. <laughs> but um, no, it's just my daughter got really sick, and you know we were watching her, and I had been in the ER with her for hours, thinking it was something with her asthma, and it ended up that she actually went into septic shock, so meaning that all of her organs started to shut down, and just had one of those moments where 
I felt God's presence, unlike almost any other time, just alongside me and calling me to, to put my hope in Him, and, and to the point that it was so palpable and so real that when my husband showed up with my pastor, and, and the reason that my husband showed up with our pastor was that um, our pediatrician had called him and said, your daughter might die tonight, you need to get to the hospital right now. This wow. is really that, serious. That's, that's a call no parent wants. Yes. And so he, you know, immediately called his mentor and his boss. My husband is also a pastor. And at that time, uh, he, he came, they came together. And, you know, Sean, my husband was just like, you know, I, I think, you know, you need to be prepared. Sarah might not make it. And I laughed. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, what did our, what did our pastor think of me laughing? But I just felt the peace and the presence of God in a way, just a, a you know, that we live like it's real because it's real because he, he, there is a Holy Spirit and there is a God and, and he you know doesn't always promise that everything's going to be okay but he just brought to mind this verse from the Psalms um, and it was almost like a promise uh, you said it's a verse that says trust me in your times of trouble and I will rescue you and you will give me glory and I just could feel like you know she was going to pull through this and it was going to be an opportunity to glorify him and to trust in Him, and not to trust in what people were saying, or even, you know, the different... Although I'm so grateful for modern medicine, and I'm so grateful for the doctors that were such a help, and she was an ICU on a ventilator for six days, and, uh, you know, but she she made it, and she's actually in nursing school right now, uh, and wants to be a nurse, because that season of her life, even just at five years old, she remembers, she spent, ended up spending half a month in the hospital by the time it was all said and done, and she remembered her nurses, and they made such an impact on her for the rest of her life. She said she was going to be a nurse, and she's doing it. They're doing it right now. All things work together for good, right? And there is proof positive of it. And who knows that her her intent, her direction in life might entirely be different were it not for that critical uh, life-on-the-edge experience, not only helping to mold her future career plans, but I would imagine that through the experience, uh, how's her relationship with God? Yeah, she has a very close relationship with the Lord, uh, just, you know, with Him pursuing her and and I think about, you know, I'm going to go back to Jeremiah again, but, you know, in Jeremiah 17, he talks about this tree planted by the riverbank, and he says, you know, cursed are those who put their trust in human strength. And he, he relates it to this dry shrub out in the desert that's isolated and it's unproductive, and that's what it is when we use our human strength. When we, And I can be so guilty of it. In that moment with my daughter in the hospital, I, I was definitely trusting the Lord, but so many other times I want to fix it. I want to trust in my logic. Or, you know, I look at our society today, even at, you know, my adultish children and see, you know, just this living by emotion. And, you know, we're, we're a country of empaths, I think, sometimes, and trusting in emotion when, you know, God calls us to trust in Him and to surrender fully to Him, and not just what our eye can see and what we can touch, taste, and feel, and what makes even sense to us. But He says, if we will make the Lord our hope and our confidence, that we will be like trees planted along the riverbank. And He doesn't say it's always going to be easy. In fact, He says heat and drought and storm will come to that tree that's planted by the riverbank. Rains on the just and the unjust, right? And, you know, it, it, it dawns on me, as you talk about, the the human the the flesh inclination to trust in human resources and and in reliance in self uh that in in the flesh in the world that might be sort of a 
a natural uh, proclivity, at the end of the day, can't that quickly suddenly rise to idolatry? Yeah. And that was the deal in, in Jeremiah's day, that, that what he was calling out was these counterfeit gods, you know, Baal and Molech, and they were, women were worshiping the Queen of Heaven. And, you know, as I read those passages, I was like, man, you know, this, this isn't what our issue today. You know, nobody's wearing an I Love Baal t-shirt that I've seen lately. But I, I love how Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about the definition of modern idolatry, and he says it's anything that captures your heart and imagination more than God. And so when we're looking to anything as, as though it's God, it could be people. You know, I have a great husband, he's a wonderful man, but he's a terrible savior. And if I'm looking for him to take to do what only God can do in my life, then that crosses the line into idolatry. Uh, God wants to be the source of our help at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the day, and and as I said earlier, I, I'm convinced that so much of this is designed to help draw us closer to Him, um, and yeah. and to find hope in the face of life's uncertainties. Uh, and, and I come back full circle to what I had mentioned at the start of our conversation, and that is the 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 Hebrews 11. It, it's mm-hmm. it's it's more than just um, a, a great observation or a great instruction. I mean, it, it can become one of those life verses that can hang so much on faith being the evidence of things hoped for. I'm sorry, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And boy, you do a word study even in the English on substance and evidence, and that's pretty powerful stuff when it comes down to the kind of role that God wants to play central to our lives and placing our our reliance in Him to the point of surrendering all to Him. Yeah. And it's from start to finish, it's what it's about. I just finished a women's study on Romans, a Bible study that's going to come out in August. And those words, those two words you're mentioning, faith and hope, are just all over the book of Romans. And I remember just sitting there with the Lord and saying, you know, what is the difference in these two words? And I was looking at the Hebrews passage, you know, how is faith different than hope? Because they're used almost interchangeably, but yet they are two distinct Greek words. And as I just began to pray and think, I'm like, faith is believing that God is God, that He's holy, that He's everything He says He is. But hope is believing that He's good, that He actually cares about the details of our lives, that He that He will keep every promise that He has made to us in His Word and through His Son. And on our darkest days, we need faith to, to have that hope, to believe. And, and, you know, Romans says that things, if you have something already, you don't need to hope for it. But it's all of these promises that we can't see yet of that we're going to be free from sin, that justice is going to be served, that everything that God has said, that He is going to work all things together for good. We're not always feeling that every day, or it doesn't always seem, but we believe it by faith, and it leads us into hope. And and certainly we know, uh, you know, Jeremiah had moments where I said, what did I get myself into here? You know, Uh, let's be succinct here that it's not that you're expected to never be challenged in these arenas. Um, things can come along in life that hit you from out of the blue uh, where your your faith falters, uh, your hope is dashed for a moment. It's that you don't remain in those places and that you quickly go back to a, a Jeremiah kind of hope. And, and in doing so, remember 
critically and centrally that God is the one in whom we have believed and are convinced or persuaded that he is able. And so toward that end, understanding that if you're not hearing God's voice in these circumstances, it's probably because you're paying attention to too much of the other noisy things out there. It's a great book and one that I think can help instill encouragement of faith and hope in all of us. Dare to hope, living intentionally in an unstable world. The book newly published as I mentioned, by Abington Press, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to Melissa Spolestra for being with us today, author of the book, and uh, visiting a bit on this important topic, Dare to Hope. All right, we're going to turn a corner here. I've got the team gearing up for a little traffic, a little news, a little weather. Ah, the weather going to rain again. There's your weather. Okay, I did my part. Uh, let me do one more thing in my part before we wrap up the hour. We're going to give away some tickets. We've got parking tickets and speeding tickets. Which do you want? <laughs> Neither. Callers number 11 and 12, you're going to win a pair of tickets to Spirit West Coast coming to the Bay Area at the Concord Pavilion on Friday, June the 7th. Lineup includes for King and Country, Ren Collective, Zach Williams, Josh Baldwin, Social Club Misfits, Land of Color, and many others. This is a single day. Pardon me, single-day multi-artist Christian musical festival. And uh, if you've never been before, it is, a, think of Day on the Green. It's just a lot of fun. It'll be taking place again on Friday, June the 7th at the Concord Pavilion. And we've got a pair of tickets for you to go. Callers number 11 and 12 right now at 888-367-5329. That's 888-367-5329. You hop on the phone, you make the call. And you'd be calling number 11 or 12, and a pair of tickets are going to go off to you, courtesy of our friends at Spirit West Coast. 888-367-5329, 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. Traffic for you right now, 6 o'clock straight up from the mighty KFAX San Francisco. Let's get a look at your ride home on this Wednesday. <laughs> 